Hello, Saubona, how's it, Molo, Jumbo, and welcome to the Every Nation podcast. We hope this message will inspire you and draw you closer to Christ. Enjoy. Overthrow of a social order in favor of a new system. That's what a revolution is defined as, a forcible overthrow of a social order in favor of a new system. And that's what we have experienced just in the last 50 years. We have gone through so much change, and we must understand that for centuries before that, there hasn't been much change (laughs) in this area. And so it's our generation that's witnessed an incredible amount of change. And the question is, well, what about us? What about the Bible? What about God? What about Jesus? What, what does Jesus say, all about the, uh, say about all of this? And, and are we just the voice saying no and don't? Or is there a bigger answer to that? That's what we want to explore this morning. And I want to show us the, 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 I want us to look more in depth at the sexual revolution and what it's actually proposing and what it's trying to do. And I want us to actually take a fresh look at the biblical narrative this morning because I feel like it's been um, tarnished in the last 50 years as to be something that it's not. So if you could, can you, can you stand to your feet? And, and we're going to read Psalm 2. Can, we can go to Psalm 2. We're just going to stand in honor of the Word of God this morning. And we're going to pray our prayer together before we, before we get into the Word in Psalm 2. Are you ready? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I commit this time to you. I believe your plans for me are good, and everything good starts with your word. Your word brings life, healing, and direction. I treasure your word more than my daily bread. I boldly confess my mind is alert, my heart is receptive. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Amen. You're welcome to take a seat. So, Psalm 2 is where we're going to start. And we're going to read verse 1. It says the following. It says, Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. We'll just pause there for a moment. Psalm 2 is actually an allegory. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible, beautiful picture um, of the world in rebellion against God. And if ever there was like a fitting psalm for the topic, this topic and this discussion that we're getting into, it would be this Psalm 2. Why? Because I feel like this has been literally out... You know, like some... They must have... You know, like... The disciples were amazed when they saw Jesus fulfilling Scripture in his time. They were like, wow, didn't the Scriptures like hundreds of years written, you know, before he got you speak about these things that he would do? And and in our time, this psalm finds its landing pad. It finds, this is, it's, it's such a description for the time we're in. We're living in a time where the world is really angry where the world is, feels like the Christian worldview and the biblical narrative is something like slavery. It's like chains. It's, like, it's something that is restricting us. It's holding back our freedom. And, and so we see 
Many people around the world, groups of people, societies and organizations coming together, planning in anger a lot of the time, and making plans to overthrow the biblical narrative. And their cry is freedom. We need freedom from this traditional worldview called Christianity. After all, the, the, the sexual revolution says the following. It says, Christianity is an old traditional belief that makes people stay in horrible marriages because it's the right thing to do. Christianity doesn't allow you to follow your true inner self and your inner desires. It wants to restrict the use of condoms, which clearly results in unwanted babies and increases in diseases. It doesn't allow you to experiment before you find the right one. But how are you ever supposed to find the right one until you try many different flavors? Christianity has restricted the progress of women and their education and their role in society in favor of outdated patriarchal systems. Christianity stigmatizes people who choose alternative lifestyles and brands them as wicked sinners, excludes them, causes them to walk around with guilt and shame, and some people even commit suicide because of this. It's Christianity. Christianity stigmatizes people, and it forces you to raise children that you never wanted to have in the first place, making you and the child pay for the rest of your life because you made a mistake. Christianity makes people stay bound to their gender even when they clearly identify and feel more comfortable with another gender. Christianity discriminates against gays and lesbians and their rights to marriage, to recognition of their marriage unions and their place in society. It brands them as wicked sinners. It outcasts them. Christianity doesn't allow you to determine your own course of action and pursue what makes you feel happy. It's, and when we look at Christianity, we see that it hasn't actually been able to keep its own moral standards. Pastors, priests, leaders are always being exposed as immoral, as child molesters. Christian marriages aren't always happy and they also always end up in divorce. Some of them also end up in divorce. So clearly Christianity is not the solution. The biblical narrative is not what is helpful and healthy for humanity. And we need to throw it off and find a new definition for our sexuality. The cry of the sexual revolution is this. Happiness, freedom, recognition, equality, and safety. We need to protect people. We need to make all people equal. We need to recognize people's different choices in life. And we need to allow people the freedom to pursue happiness in their life. Case in point, I've been following the example of a... a, um, of a reality TV program in America where a young girl, boy, at the age of five started presenting as a girl and to which the parents actually encouraged it. The, the, ch- the child has grown up, is now 15 years old, has gone through a sex change, is going through high school uh, with the, the change of being from a 
from a boy to a girl and dealing with all of that negative you know, feedback from all these peers, her peers, and, and, and the biggest concern is now that the fact that boys don't want to date her because then the boys will be seen as gay. This is just like a real example of what's happening. When they were going through the whole sex change process, they asked the siblings of, of this girl called Jazz, like, how do you feel about this process? And they weren't happy about the process. But then they, the one sibling said something powerful. Um, the brother, I think it was, said this, said that then I realized that I would be hindering my sister's, my brother, now changed sister, sister's happiness. And what I really want is for my brother, now changed his sister, just to be happy with their life. So happiness and the pursuit of happiness is one of the driving factors behind all the changes and definitions uh, that we're seeing in sexuality. And how are we as Christians to fight against this? I mean, if you take the Christian worldview, this is what the biblical narrative is branded as. Traditionalism, patriarchy, suppression, repression, and victimization. And to be honest... In many ways, we, we are that and have done that. And in many ways, I feel as Christians and the church, we have failed to adequately address the problems that we're facing in the area of sexuality. And as a minister of the gospel, I want to publicly repent this morning for the victimization, for the repression, for the exclusion of people struggling with gender disorientation or alternative sexual lifestyles. As Christians, we are the ones who should not be victimizing anybody. We should be following the ways of Jesus and loving all people and helping people find their true happiness in Christ. And so I think as Christians, we haven't done well in the past. And I repent for that as a minister of the gospel and for all the other ministers and for all the other churches to say that we haven't done what we should have done and could have done in this area. But how do we as Christians then stand? Are we powerless? I mean, how is it that, how can we argue with happiness and freedom? Is this not what we want for people? Is, does, is not God wanting people to be happy at the end of the day? Do we not want people to have freedom? I mean, isn't that not the Christian like message? The Christian message is one of freedom. Do we not want people to be recognized and noticed and valued and people to be safe in our society where they haven't always been in the past? Is, it, is that not things that we want? So, so what we find as Christians is that we're in a very difficult place because there's this campaign that we feel powerless to say anything against because then we are branded as closed-minded, fundamental, repressive, patriarchal people at the end of the day. So what, what is our response in the midst of this Well, I think if we're going to have any response to this, we have to ask a question. And the question we have to ask is this, is how has the sexual revolution delivered on its promises of freedom and happiness? I think that's really our starting point. Because we have a movement at the moment, a global 
movement. And it's global, and it's well-organized, and it's well-funded, and they are prepared to battle every constitution and every nation to change every law to, to fit their, their agenda. Right? But the question remains is, we've had 50, 60 years of this experiment called sexual freedom, and the, and the question is, how has it delivered? What, what are the, what's the feedback from it? You know, at, at the, at, when it started, we, we kind of felt a little bit powerless. We felt, yeah, okay, freedom, okay, this is what Jesus said, equality, so we've got to have equality. And, and so we, we kind of felt powerless. But now we sit in an interesting time where we're actually starting to see the results of the sexual revolution. We're actually, this, the data is starting to come back at us. And what we're finding now, 50, 60 years into this revolution is that the world is becoming more broken, more depressed, more confused, more lonely, more suicidal, and would you believe it, the world is getting less sex <laughs> in the process. <laughs> you know, when I first heard that statistic, I thought, less sex? That's amazing. What, it's like everybody becoming Christian? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> like, what, what is actually going on here? I need to research that. So I researched that. In his book, Sex by Numbers, David Spielhalter said the following. He said that that's sex, sex has steadily declined in frequency over the last two decades. And it seems weird when you think of when they did the, the research, they found they interviewed a cross-spectrum of people and they found that sexual activity has radically, is, is radically decreasing in the last year. And you think, well, what, what's going on, though? But there's a massive hookup culture that's happening, you know? Um, surely people are getting more sex now than they've ever had before. Um, but in another book, Donna Frita said, in, in The End of Sex, she said the following. She said, more and more people are actually delaying marriage for career, but they still want sex. But they want it without love, without emotion and relationship, all of which are time-consuming, hard work, messy, exclusive, require limitation, sacrifice, money, and people just don't have the time for it anymore. So the desire for sex is like out there, but people are not getting as much because the lifestyles that we're living are not actually making us better relationally. And so if we're going to actually have sex with someone, it requires us to actually build a relationship and start a conversation and maybe seduce them or them seduce us or there has to be some sort of like connection that actually takes place before we get there. But what we have right now is a generation that is completely relationally dysfunctional and doesn't know how to do any of that. And so sex is not actually happening in relationships, but it is happening in other spheres. Sex with yourself is increasing. Sex with robots is increasing. Sex with prostitutes is increasing. So the world is finding a way to release its desire for sex, but it's just not in the category of relationships anymore. And at the end of the day, porn is a lot easier than sex. You can have sex online with anyone. You can pay for it. Prostitution is global and in everywhere, and it's available at a click, so um, why not? However, the statistics are showing that none of it is satisfying. 
Donna Fritas in her book says this. She said, the hookup culture is leaving a generation unhappy, sexually unfulfilled, and confused about intimacy. Not only the hookup culture, but pornography and prostitution as well. It's leaving a generation unhappy, sexually unfulfilled, and confused about intimacy. A New York Times article was written which says, what's lust got to do with it? And the, the writer said this, said that getting naked and having sex with strangers is actually very hard. We portray it as fun and we pretend it's fun, but what people are craving is intimacy, which is not easy in a hookup culture. The statistics and the stats are coming back at us and what they're showing us is that it's not sex that we're looking for. What we're looking for is relationship, connection, and intimacy. And robots and prostitutes and Tinder hookups cannot provide us with what we really need. And so there's actually a decrease in sex. We're a strange new generation. We're a generation of people that have been led to believe that we will find intimacy and relationship and connection in the act of sex. Somebody has fooled us somewhere. Intimacy, connection, and relationship are found in relationship, (laughs) not in the act of sex. Who has fooled us? We need to ask. Not only that, more statistics are coming back and showing that loneliness is now soaring to epidemic levels. Epidemic levels. Why epidemic levels? Well, they have found, their research has shown from, and this is secular research, has shown from UCLA and other surveys and and various studies that um, loneliness leads to psychiatric disorders like depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, Um, but also is seriously harmful to the body, causing heart disease, stroke, um, metastatic cancer, Alzheimer's disease. Um, And what they've found in in surveys is that in many nations across the world, the the rate at which people are declaring that they are lonely has increased radically in the last two decades. Loneliness and loneliness culture is radically increasing. Britain has even appointed the world's first loneliness minister. I'm not joking. Tracy Crouch is Britain's first loneliness. Why? Well, because loneliness costs us in health and mental disorders. It costs the UK 3.5 billion pounds annually. I said billion, not million. And I said pounds. All right. <laughs> Society is extremely lonely. Um, in Japan, there are reports that um, in the last year that 500,000 people surveyed found that they actually hadn't left their homes in six months. Haven't actually left their home 
in six months and interacted with other. The, the rise in, in people living by themselves has radically increased. And with that, there is a radical pain that comes, emotional pain that comes with that. The sexual revolution promised intimacy, connection, more relationships, more friends. Just swipe, was it left, right, whatever, and you will find what you're looking for, but it hasn't delivered and it hasn't satisfied the loneliness monster that's in, ev- in each and every one of us. God's words in Genesis, it is not good that a man should be alone, are really a haunting cry for this generation because we are finding that that is scientifically, uh, sociologically, uh, physiologically, emotionally true. When God said that it's not good for man to be alone, he, He really meant it in every way that man is man. But the problem is this, is how do we solve it? Can we solve it by clicking? Can we solve it by going to speed dating? Can we, how do we solve this loneliness problem? We have become so relationally dysfunctional and we're not able to cross the relationship divide anymore and it's having incredible negative influence in our lives. What about, let's move on from loneliness, what about sexual aggression and perversion? The sexual revolution has promised freedom of sexuality and And everybody will find happiness and fulfillment. And what we're finding out is that sexual aggression and perversion has soared in society. Rape soared in society. Sexual offenses are soaring. They did a study on airplanes. I couldn't believe this. Like on airplanes, they found a a 66% increase in sexual offenses taking place on airplanes, where women go to sleep and they fall asleep on an airplane and wake up with somebody sexually touching them in some, in some sort of way. You're not safe to fall asleep on an airplane or a bus or any form of public transport. We shouldn't be anywhere on the bus. You know, but, but you're not safe any longer. Why? Because sexual aggression and taking sex has become part of our society. People believe it's there to be taken. In South Africa, what is very scary is that a survey was done in 2007 from children ages 10 to 19. This actually breaks my heart. 10 to 19 years old. Years old. The survey was done by the CIET in 2007, and this is what the survey came back as. They thought that not, it was not violent to force sex upon someone they knew. 60% of both boys and girls thought it was not violent to force sex upon someone they knew. 11% of boys and 4% of girls admitted to forcing someone else to having sex with them. In another survey conducted with 1,500 school children in Johannesburg, all of the boys, a quarter, sorry, of all of the boys interviewed, quarter, 25%, said that jack rolling, which is really a term for gang rape, was fun. Furthermore, more than half of the interviewees insisted that when a girl says no to sex, what she really means is yes. 
ages 10 to 19. This is 2007, guys. This is our generation. This is now. These are high school kids. We think about just how sex has changed in movies. Like if you just do like a movie review and just rewind the clock 30 years ago and see how sex has changed. Sex in movies was typically, and not always, but typically seen as this like fun, romantic, fall in love with the man of your dreams, the woman of your dreams, right off into the sunset, you know, kisses with like the sun setting behind them, you know, just gentle caressing and, and loving and, and, and love happening was, was kind of like the norm of what sex was in movies. You compare that to what we're seeing now on Netflix. Sex has become something that's really dark, aggressive, and animalistic as well. It's become something that is like you just take it if you need it. It's two bodies connecting and nothing more than that. Normal, loving intimacy, if it, this is what the sexual revolution says, if normal, loving intimacy doesn't work, try tie-downs, try whipping, try strangulation, t- try drugs <laughs> to spruce up your sex life. And women are reporting that because of pornography, men are starting to outplay their sexual fantasies on them in increasingly difficult and painful positions which they make them feel uncomfortable. So we're seeing a huge increase in aggression, victimization, hurt, and pain from the sexual revolution. It was crying, freedom, more sex for everyone, joy, happiness, throw off the chains of Christianity. But what we're seeing is actually a very dark, very painful, very abusive result from the sexual revolution. How many people right now are actually trapped in sexual slavery around the world? We we must acknowledge the fact that sexual slavery around the world, I'm talking about human trafficking and all of that, is a direct result of the sexual revolution, not the biblical narrative. (laughs) The biblical narrative didn't start that and, and, and propose that and and encourage that in any way. It's the sexual revolution that has resulted in millions, and I say this with like no, like the statistics are there, millions of sexual people bound in sexual slavery. Right now, as we, like here this morning, there are many people, women in particular, not only women though, who are sitting in small rooms with just a bed, waiting for somebody to click on their channel so that they can do something sexual on the internet for the other person that probably lives in another country and get a dollar (laughs) as payment for it. And they don't know any other life than that right now. Is that freedom? And is that equality? Is that recognition? Is that really the result of something good? I think we can all look and, and just with obvious explanation, look at the sexual revolution and say it has not delivered. Sexual addiction has radically soared in society to the point where we even now, even in our city, 
Um, we, we used to have Narcotics Anonymous, but now we actually have sexual. It's just, it's just, it's, you know, it used to be AA, and then it was so Alcoholics Anonymous. Then we had, then we have Narcotics Anonymous, and now it's Sexual Addicts Anonymous as well. So, so we've realized actually, let's just put all the addicts in the same room. So, <laughs> if it's narcotics, or if it's alcohol, or if it's sex, just just let's get everybody together. But why? Be, sex has made it into the addiction. We, we see this in, in, in many of our Hollywood stars even going and turning themselves in because they're addicted to sex. Um, and it's destroying their lives in the same way that narcotics is destroying lives. In fact, research out at the moment is showing that nar- what actually happens in pornography addiction is very similar to what happens in narcotics addiction in terms of the brain. So when you do brain scans, what you find is that the, when you're taking drugs, when you're spiking heroin or cocaine or, some, or alcohol, what, what it's feeding in the brain is exactly what pornography feeds in the brain. And, it's, and, and, the, and you think about, well, there are some barriers to getting drugs, but there is no barrier to getting pornography in our society any longer. Addiction has radically increased, and with that, shame, guilt, and destroyed lives, and destroyed marriages as well. What about the breakdown in family? The sexual revolution has directly tried to lower the importance of family in society, the role that family plays. So the sexual revolution is like, explore your sexuality, follow your desires, you know, ex- do whatever you want. The biblical narrative is let's build families. And they've deliberately tried over the last few years to lower the importance of family in society. But now we're sitting in a position where all the stats are coming back at us and what we're seeing is that there is no replacement for the family unit in terms of building a healthy society. The more we break the family down, the more we become broken. The more we break marriage, take fathers out of the home, increase and encourage a divorce, the more we're damaging our children. And what is happening is they're growing up as damaged adults who are then damaging other people and we are experiencing brokenness on radical scale. Um, you know, and it's... And we're going to talk more about like the LGBTQT in the next couple of weeks and and the movement there, but the stats are coming back in that area and showing the same thing that you know the the revolution is crying out freedom and recognition, but it's not actually delivering. And, and what we're finding out with people who are changing their sex and crossing the heterosexual uh, line is that it's that they're not finding happiness on the other side. In fact, they're finding increasing amounts of brokenness on the other side. So we have to ask the question, is, really, is all of this really progressive? Are we progressing as a society? Are we getting better? Are we getting more equal? Well, in the area of um, accepting people and, 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 and recognizing individuals and equality, I think there has been progress. Um, but if you look underneath that, you'll see there has been actually a complete regression in every area. Um, there's a book um, written by a Lutheran pastor, Matthew Ruger, 
And he says, Sexual Morality in a Christless World. That's the title of his book. And he says this. He says, Claims in our day of being progressive and moving forward by accepting the new prevailing views on sexuality and same-sex marriage, he said, are horribly misinformed. Contemporary views about sexuality are simply a revival of an older, much less loving view of the world. When you go back and you look at various empires, one, one of them being the Roman Empire, and you see em- societies built not on the biblical narrative of male, female, family, husband, wife, raising children in commitment, what you find in all of those societies is um, self-giving love. Um, sorry, what you find in all of those societies is mass abuse and slavery. um, If you rewind the clock and you look at the Roman Empire where there was no Christian biblical view, you'll see slaves, male and female, were common. Women could be expected to be raped. There was widespread prostitution. Uh, Predatory homosexuality was common. Um, and, and, And various other things as well. Imagine the reaction of a pagan Roman slave girl who learned for the first time that she had value, not monetary value, as a piece of goods to be enjoyed and discarded away by her owner, but eternal value because she was made in the very image of God. And then to say that we're actually progressing when we're actually going back to a society like that is, is, to, is actually we're fooling ourselves, people. We're going backwards. So here we are. Psalm 2 is real. The cry of the world is, let's throw off these oppressive laws. But all we've discovered, actually, is that breaking God's laws breaks nobody but us. God's laws are not there to restrict or to forbid us from a higher reality or a better life, but God's laws are where we find the highest reality and the better life we're looking for. We can... In this room, we can look back uh, with the benefit of hindsight and we can look at Adam and Eve. And we can see, when we look at that story, that God was not withholding anything good from them. (laughs) He was not keeping them back in any way, but the serpent, Satan, was trying to convince them otherwise, that God's laws were actually restrictive, that if you break this law and if you really eat that fruit, then you will come to a higher level of existence. You'll find the happiness. You'll find something else. God is restricting you in some way. And really, this is what the sexual revolution is. It's a scam from Satan. We've been duped. He is called the father of lies, in the Bible, he is a deceiver of the brethren. And what he has done is he's deceived us into thinking that God's laws are somehow restrictive and holding us back from our true identity and our true life that we should be living. We've been scammed by him. And we must see the biblical narrative for what it is. It's not traditionalism, patriarchy, suppression, repression, victimization. The biblical narrative... Let me outline it for you this morning. Is this. Is that God created you in love. You are a human. He created you male and female. And He blessed you in your maleness. 
and he blessed you in your femaleness. It is good to be a male in a male body. It is good to be a female in a female body. The two are equal, but they are equal, but they're opposites, according to the Bible. According to Genesis, they're equal but different. There are differences in sexuality according to the Bible. And we celebrate the female form and we celebrate the male form because why? Because they are made with intrinsic value. They are made in the image of God, Imago Dei. We find our worth not by finding sexual uh, freedom. We find our worth in a creator who created us and loved us and made us in his image. We carry worth not because we are allowed to explore our sexuality. We carry worth just because we're here, because we're alive. And whatever form we take on, whatever form we are, like whether, you know, if you have the use of your legs or you don't, if you have the use of your eyes or you don't, you have the use of your hands or you don't, you're still made in Imago Dei and you carry worth. That's the biblical story. You are worth more. You are more than who you choose to have sex with. The LGBTQT movement wants you to, to form your identity around your sexual orientation. The Christian biblical worldview says that you are made in the image of God and you build your identity around that, not your sexual orientation. If you build your identity around anything other than that, if you build your, your, your identity around a broken <laughs> deception, you will only find brokenness and deception in your life. But if you build it around the truth, what you'll find is lasting peace, joy, and happiness, the thing that you're actually looking for. God, it says in the Bible, He created you in love in His image, but it also says this, is that He made this thing called marriage. And the Bible says that marriage is honorable above all. Amen. Marriage in the Bible is defined as a commitment, as a responsibility, as a union, as a drawing together of two people in oneness, the two, not three or four, the two shall become one, the Bible says. Marriage is, has dignity, has worth, has, has significance because it's something that brings two people into a unity and a oneness in the boundaries of commitment and responsibility, which is something that provides a safety for the family unit and for sex. It's kind of like you know, sex is a really powerful thing. It is really, it has the ability to shape us and, and harm us in many different ways. And if we take sex out of the boundary of marriage, what we find is we take a very powerful thing, and, it, you know, a, a very powerful thing out of its correct boundaries can become something that's very damaging. Very damaging. I mean, you take hot water out of a pot. <laughs> And the sexual revolution says, you know, take the hot water out the pot. Pour it over your head. Put it in your pockets. You know, it, 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 the boundary is not important anymore. It's, it's literally, it's like saying, take that power called sex and, and use it however you want. The, the result will be something that harms us. The biblical narrative is this, is that, is that nuclear families, fathers loving their wives, husbands loving their wives, procreating, having children, creating a safe place for their children where they are loved and nurtured, where they are cared for and released into their prophetic destiny is really the solution for society. 
And if we go back to Psalm 2, we have to ask the question, why? The psalmist is asking it for us. He's saying, why is the world so angry? (laughs) Why are we so angry? Why are we... Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time in futile plans? And I think that's a very good question to ask. Why are we so angry with the biblical narrative? I mean, when we look at it, it is the, it is the narrative, it is the story that gives you the most worth. It's the story that, that takes sex and makes it something beautiful and significant that brings a union between two people. It takes marriages and raises it up. It raises, it raises the standard. It raises the bar on everything. It raises humanity to new levels where the sexual revolution actually takes us further and further down to the point where we find there's no difference between us and the animals. It's the biblical worldview that brings dignity to humanity. The sexual revolution has done nothing to deliver dignity. Bill Johnson said the following. He said, When we lose the knowledge of the existence of a creator, we lose the concept of design. When we lose the concept of design, we undermine the discovery of purpose. When we undermine the discovery of purpose, we remove the conviction of accountability. When we remove the conviction of accountability, we undermine the fear of God. And the Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So when when we... (laughs) When we take God out of the picture, when we take His laws out of the picture, what we see is foolishness. Wisdom goes from us. We think we're getting something, but we're actually not. We're being fooled in the process. If we are struggling with the biblical story, the biblical narrative, what we don't need to do is throw it away and try something else. (laughs) Instead, what we need to do is press in and strengthen and find ways to uphold it. The problem's not the moral, but maybe the implementation. That's typically what I found out. You know, what you don't need is, is, is another marriage or more partners to make you happy. What you actually need is marriage counseling. <laughs> You'd be humble enough to admit it. What you don't need is more sex and more sexual partners. What you actually need is to come out of relational dysfunction and loneliness and learn in a loving, caring environment how to build relationally, how to find your true identity, meet the spouse that God has for you, and build a life of monogamy. <laughs> and, we, and we must see that in the midst of this, this is God's heart to us. I want you to know this morning that God is not condemning you this morning for failing with the biblical narrative. Let's be honest this morning, we have all failed to uphold God's laws. I got my hand up this morning, all right? We have all failed in this area. It's not to throw it all out then, or we failed so it's too hard or whatever. No, it's to press in and to uphold it and value it. Um, And we see this with the woman caught in adultery. We see an incredible picture where, where there's this woman who is caught in the act of adultery. I don't know what happened to the guy. Because it takes two to tango, you know, but... But that society, you know, they, it was the woman's fault, all right? So, so these religious fundamentalists bring this woman and they throw her down. And, and we have to guess that maybe she was 
half naked because she was caught in the act, or completely naked, dragged into the public square, thrown down, and, and they were trying to trap Jesus into saying, well, you know, the law says that we should stone her. What do you say? And if he says, well, let's go with the law, then he's uncaring or whatever. But if he defends her, then he's, a, then he's going against God's law. And Jesus does something amazing. He just draws in the sand for a little while, and, um, and then he says something. He says to, the, to, the, to those people who dragged her in, he says, I don't know what he was writing in the sand. Some people have suggested it was the names of the girlfriends of all the Pharisees that were standing there accusing. And then he gets up and says, you know, he is without sin, throw the first stone. And they're looking at their girlfriend's names in the sand. And they, and they all started to leave. I don't know what happened in that moment. But, but he said, Who is, whoever's without sin, throw the first stone. And I think this is the disposition of what we should be. If we're asking for how do we behave as Christians, we behave like Jesus would behave. We say, he's without sin, throw the first son. And we have a good look inside, and we realize, whoa, okay, maybe we're not struggling with gender disorientation or homosexuality or lesbianism, but you have struggled with something in some sort of way. That was not according to the biblical sense. So, so the point is, like, we do not, our, dis, our response in this time is not to throw stones. Our response is not to attack, to victimize, to, you know what I mean? Amen? This is not our time to get up on our religious high horses and look down on people struggling in these areas. This, that is not the correct response. Instead, Jesus steps in, all right, between judgment and shame. And what he does is He creates space. We call that space grace. He creates a space called grace. Okay? And then He allows, He restores this woman's dignity. Okay? He restores her to what she should be. And then notice what He says to her in the Bible when you go read it in your own time. He says, He doesn't say to her this, Woman, your accusers have all left. I don't, con- I don't accuse you anymore. Go and do what makes you happy. He doesn't say that. Thank you, Malou. He doesn't say it, okay? Malou's my like walking Bible, all right? We have confirmation this morning. He doesn't say, go and do what makes you happy now. No, what does he say? Go and sin no more. You guys know your Bibles. He, so, in the, so what he does is he creates grace and restoration of dignity, but he upholds the law. He upholds God's standard. He upholds that he's not, he doesn't lower the bar in any way. He doesn't say, oh, shame, you've struggled. Maybe just, you know, live there. You know, it's okay anyway. You know, it doesn't really matter. No, he, he upholds the standard. Why? Because to do anything otherwise would be inhumane. To do anything otherwise would be hurtful and harmful. You see, if somebody comes and says they're struggling with some sort of sexual thing that, that is not according to the biblical narrative, that doesn't find honor in the biblical narrative, <laughs> it would be wrong and it would be harmful of us to tell them to keep exploring their sexuality and not tell them God's amazing standard and where their true freedom is. I had a friend who came to me, booked an appointment with me, friend for many years, sat me down and said, Wayne, I am gay. I've decided to choose a gay Christian friend. I've decided to live a gay lifestyle. 
What do you do in a situation like that? Even had a gay partner at that time. She said, I just want you to know because you're my friend and I'm, I'm, this is me coming out. So what, do I, what should I do? Well, I should do what Jesus did. Okay? I don't start throwing stones. Okay? I create a space where there's grace. Okay? Create a space where there's grace. And in that space, right, I then uphold God's standard as what they really need for their life. And I said to him, my friend, I don't criticize you, I don't condemn you, I don't do any of that sort of stuff, but I do warn you. I do warn you that what you're choosing will result in more brokenness in your life. I don't condemn you, but I am warning you that you need to come out of that thing. That thing is not there, it's not your friend, it's not there to help you, it's not an idea that's going to cause you to progress in life, it's not where you're going to find the elusive part of of happiness and joy that you're really looking for, where you are going to find it is in Jesus and following His commands. Fortunately, and I'm really happy to report, that after a few years, unfortunately, more brokenness in my friend's life, he did manage to come out of that and find, once again, true happiness in Jesus Christ. So... Which is just a tip, and he's a strong leader in his church today, which I'm really like, I praise God for that. But that was the work of many people loving and helping and encouraging and counseling along the way. So I I want us to see this is the Jesus way that we deal with this. We don't lower God's standard, we uphold it. Can somebody say amen to that? Do you know that breaking God's laws... And deviating from the biblical narrative. And I know I'm going a little bit longer this morning. I hope you're okay. Um, is that it breaks nobody but ourselves. There's, there's even research that shows now that when you've been engaging in a sexual relationship and you break up, and they do brain scans on people who have just gone through a breakup, what they find that the part of the brain that lights up is the same part of the brain that lights up when a bone in the body is broken. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That was not just poetry. That was design. He was declaring the design of God. Is that the two really shall become one. That they're not meant to be broken and separated. When quizzed about divorce, Jesus did not say, oh, it's fine because, you know, marriage doesn't work, so go get divorced. No, he he never did that. He said there is grounds for divorce. There is grounds for it. And the, the ground is for sexual immorality. However, God never intended from the beginning for the two to be separated. He upheld God's design as the, really the solution that makes you happy. So if you're trapped in a marriage that is unhappy at the moment, what you don't need is escape. What we need is help. You see, and this is the problem, I think, with a lot of us as humans, is that we always look for the easy way out. We always look for the, the quickest promise to freedom and joy that we can find. And this is where the sexual revolution comes in and promises quick freedom, quick joy. But what we find is when we bite that apple, it never promises anything. In fact, it only results in curses in our life. I am a product of a person who bought the sexual revolution with everything. I grew up in a world where I, this was the mantra of my day. 
This was like how you live, you know. You, of course you live with people. Of course you have sex with girls. Of course you get into relationships before marriage, whatever. Like, what is marriage? Marriage is irrelevant in our society. I am somebody who bought that completely. I followed that. I was a proponent of it. I was a champion of that cause. <laughs> I, you know, I was like, this is, this is true happiness. This is true freedom. And what I found was brokenness. What I found was I was ended up in a bedroom by myself wanting to take sleeping pills to kill myself. From one broken relationship to the next, I experienced what the Bible says, is that we do not break God's laws, they break us. But what I did find in that place was a loving God who did not condemn me, but brought me back, accepted me, loved me, restored my dignity, restored my self-worth, taught me how to think correctly about women, about marriage, about... You know, when I met Trish, I didn't even want to get married. I was too scared of marriage. You know, and, and he, I, my mind, my mental view of marriage had been so damaged growing up. Like, I just didn't see it as anything good anymore. But he had to reshape my mind. And so what we find is that it's not just giving in to our desires, but it's actually transforming, it's actually renewing our minds that we become transformed and step into the likeness more and more of God. And we find the happiness that you're looking for once again. So in conclusion, if you, you might be here this morning, all right, and you might be engaging in premarital sex. In all likelihood... There's a few of us this morning who are engaging in premarital sex. You might be here this morning and you might be engaging in extramarital sex in whatever form it is. You might be here this morning and you're struggling with secret sexual desires and addictions. Maybe it's pornography or prostitution or homosexuality or maybe it's even gender disorientation. What does the sexual revolution say to you? Explore that desire. Keep following your desires. Pursue your desires. What does the biblical narrative say? It says, come out from that lie. Come out from that deception. Come out of that thing that's actually going to harm you and step into the true story over your life, which is the biblical narrative. 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to finish with this scripture. I think I've gone off. Is there a mic? To. 1 Corinthians 6. Let's finish with this. We must, we must understand the Bible was not written to a bunch of self-righteous people who had, you know, just that they had their lives completely together. All right. The Bible was not written to such people. It was written to them and we're like them in many ways. 6 verse 9 says the following. It says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourself. I'm here to just be a sober voice. Please, do not fool yourself. Don't fool yourself into thinking that what you're doing is okay, that it's going to result in happiness and joy in your life. It says, those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality, we can throw in everything else there, or who are thieves or are greedy people or are drunkards or are abusive or cheat people. So there's a big, there's a big category here. And typically, we normally focus on one or two, but there's a lot there. Greed, hello, is there, okay? None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And some of you were like that. But you were cleansed. 
You were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. What does Jesus do? He makes you right, he makes you holy, and he cleans you from these things. We must see these things for what they are. They are sin. They are sin against God. And it's not like we we shouldn't bring them as sin and then think, oh, we're just labeling people as sinners. No, we're calling what sin is, all right? Sin is what it is, all right, this morning. We can't, I can't, I can't stand up here and, and say the Bible doesn't teach that homosexuality is a sin. It's a sin. Okay, but now that shouldn't leave you disempowered. That shouldn't leave you because there's lots of sins in the Bible. <laughs> and everybody's committing these things. And we all find ourselves in the same boat. What, but what we do need to move on from is, is that Jesus comes and saves us from our sin. He doesn't leave us in our sins. And so while we recognize that there is sin and we're honest about it, what we also need to recognize is that we shouldn't just live in it, accept it, and normalize it, but we should move on to what God has actually called us to do. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the human story. It's, I was like this, but now I'm like that. That is what God has called each and every one of us to. So you might be sexually broken in some way this morning. I want you to know there's good news. Let's call it what it is. Don't hide it. Don't stick it under the counter. Don't try and normalize it. Don't say, well, it's not as bad as somebody else's sin. Call it what it is. Bring it to Jesus. Because I can tell you now, He has got the power and the ability to raise you up out of that place and give you the life that you're really looking for. But you have to come out of your sin. You have to bend your knee and call it what it is. If you just call it your identity, if you just call it the way you are, then there, then there is no help for you. There is no solution for you. You have to call it what it is, agree with the biblical narrative, and what you do when you find that agreement is you find the help of the Holy Spirit. You find the help of local churches and communities, and you can start the process of restoration. I stand today as a man who is married, all right? Let me tell you something. That is a miracle. If you knew me 20-something years ago, man, you, you, would not, <laughs> you would not believe that I'd be a happily married man today raising children in a home. I am testimony of the power of God to take a delinquent, <laughs> to take a, a, a sexually delinquent person and transform them and bring them into lasting joy. I've tasted both. So you can't, you can't say to me today, <laughs> you know, I, I, you, you can't say to me one's better than that. I've tasted both. I know what it's like to live without God. And I know what it's like to build my life on the rock called Jesus Christ. I know what it's like to build on the sand and see my house come tumbling down. And I know what it's like to build on the rock and live in peace, in confidence that God is with me. God is for me. He's got me. He's got my life. The thing that we were all created for, people. So this morning, I'm calling you to Christ, and I'm calling you out of your sin. Ravi Zacharias says this. He says, sin will take you further than what you want to go, keep you longer than what you want to stay, and cost you more than what you want to pay. Let's just call it what it is. And let's build a church of a loving, caring environment here where there's no stone throwers, 
There's no like anyone standing up on a on a moral high horse above anybody else. We're all broken in this area in some way. And what we can't do is lower God's standard. But rather uphold it and pursue it together and help each other and empower each other. And when we do that, we step into the beauty of what humanity should be on the earth. I want to also warn you, though, it might be a long journey. You know, when you come to Christ, some things go easily. I used to, I used to smoke a box of cigarettes every day. And I used to wake up with an ashtray next to my bed. And the first thing I used to do was smoke a cigarette. When I gave my life to Jesus, I was instantaneously set free from cigarettes. I never had a desire for them ever again from the day I got saved. Never again. My addiction was completely broken. However, <laughs> my addiction to pornography continued for a couple of years after that, after giving my life to Christ. And it was through the love and care of brothers and sisters and people teaching truth and putting the truth in my heart and learning to, to lay up God's word, word in my heart so that I wouldn't sin against God. Through a process of renewing my mind, through a difficult process of, of coming out of isolation and into accountability. And through all of these things that I found the life that God has promised. And I stand here today and I say, guys, it's for you too. It's for you too. You can have it. You can have it. Sexual purity is possible. Sexual freedom is possible. But you've got to choose which story will you find it in. The sexual revolution or in the biblical narrative. Which story is the right story? Can we stand to our feet? I'm done. Amazing how this message touches us here. And maybe as you've been sitting here, you've been feeling condemnation or fear or anxiety or, I don't know, maybe you're going through a whole host of emotions as we just, as we say these things this morning. I want you to know my intention this morning is, is no condemnation in this house, okay? The intention this morning is you stepping into the identity and freedom that you were really called to. Amen. Can we take a moment to pray? Father, we gather this morning as a family that's been broken in many ways from the sexual revolution. Some of us are the, the product of divorced homes and unfaithful parents, and maybe even unwanted or accidents according to what people have said. Some of us here are addicted in many ways, in different ways. We all stand here before you, Lord, needing your help, your love, and your guidance. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning. I pray for a touch of your love. I pray this morning for the comfort of your spirit. Lord, I pray for the conviction of your spirit as well. Lord, you called us out of darkness and into light. And in the area of sexuality, that is, 
That is so true. There is a darkness and there is a light. And we pray this, I pray this morning, Lord, that you call your children out of that darkness, Lord. I pray that you release them this morning from the chains of immorality, from the chains of oppressive ideologies that are causing them to walk in slavery and addiction, Father God. And I pray for the light of the gospel of truth to penetrate every heart. I pray for your healing power to flow this morning, to restore marriages, relationships, friendships. Lord, I pray that we would find courage this morning to come out of our darkness and to walk in the light where we can have fellowship with each other. Jesus, I pray for a new day. I pray for hope. I pray for freedom this morning over your church. And Lord, I bless your people in your precious name this morning. Amen. We're going to open up the altar this morning for prayer and ministry. And I don't want... I don't want anybody here this morning who's feeling maybe in some way that you are broken and you you bought a lie and you know that you're broken to leave here without some sort of ministry. And so if that is you, if, and in any area over here, any area, all right, um, whatever I've touched on, if it's impacted you, you're welcome. Come forward. Come receive prayer. We believe as a church in the power of prayer. Amen. Otherwise, church, let's let's go and have some. Thank you for tuning in. For more messages like these and other resources, you can visit our website at enderban.org. Remember to subscribe to our podcast channel to stay up to date with the latest sermons. Be blessed.